Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 8. Shriekers, Demons and Witches. The Tale of Vasilisa Elexiva. Wandering over the low hills, dirt paths, empty forests and dug-up fields of Smolensk province in western Russia, the vagrant Zahar saw in the distance the tiny village of Ashepkova. With just over 300 residents, the small settlement was pretty much typical of other such places in Russia. A single wide road, dusty in the summer, frozen in the winter, mud-ridden in the spring. Wooden huts, some large, some small, some well-kept, some dilapidated. The smell of unwashed animals and their produce permeating the air. Zahar had probably seen a hundred such places over the course of his peregrinations. He started poking around, knocking on doors and accosting strangers for a few scraps of change or a morsel of bread. Soon he had managed to get on the bad side of some of the locals, distrustful of outsiders, especially those bearing a begging bowl. An altercation broke out with a terrible result. Poor, friendless Zakhar was killed. For all the weakness of policing and the law in rural Russia at the end of the 19th century, a blind eye could not be turned to murder. An investigation began, and finally culprits were identified. Among them, the peasant paterfamilias Nikolai Babiev, who was duly convicted and dispatched as a criminal into exile. Babiev's wife, Siklitinia, was understandably distraught. Without her husband, the main provider and worker of the family, life was now going to be much, much harder. In her anger, she and her friends turned on the woman, whose testimony had apparently led to Babiev's arrest, Vasilisa Elexiva. Over the next couple of years, Elexiva's life became increasingly unbearable. The jowl-by-jowl existence of the Russian peasantry gave her little opportunity to escape the poisoned words the knife-like glances, and the incessant gossip of her neighbours. Finally, in 1897, she broke, and in the most spectacular way possible. In the midst of a service in the village's tiny church, she suffered a convulsive fit, thrashing, screaming and blaspheming. In the midst of her howls came a horrendous accusation. Cyclitinia was to blame. Cyclitinia had cursed her. Cyclitinia was a witch most foul. Alexeva's episodes only worsened as the years went by, with her despairing relatives watching on. Herbal remedies, the first resort of any peasant for any ailment, had no effect, but perhaps God would help. Alexeva was sent to a nearby convent, where, it was hoped, the relics of the saint and the holiness of the nuns would drive out whatever unclean force had taken hold of the hapless woman. But it was all in vain. For the village of Ashepkova, things now went from bad to worse. Whatever Alexeva had, it started to spread. Others also began to convulsively thrash and create jaw-dropping scenes in the church. At its highest point, the epidemic claimed 15 women and 2 men. At first, the villagers had been willing to give Cyclitinia the benefit of a doubt. Alexeva's howls of witchcraft were the desperate last resort of a woman driven to the brink by petty village squabbling. 
But now that others were suffering from the same affliction, they could no longer look away. Cicletinia and her young daughter, previously upstanding members of the community, began to be physically attacked by their neighbours, driven by fear and vengeance. It could no longer be doubted. She was a witch. At this point, the authorities were informed of the goings-on in a Shepkova. Turning up to investigate in May 1898, a local aristocratic police official by the name of Izumski described to his superiors what he witnessed among some of the women of the village. Initially, their faces and eyes twitched. They jumped up and down on the bench. Then came a frightening shriek which caused them to go into a frenzy, tear at their clothing and hair and throw themselves from the bench onto the floor or under the table in the hut. They struck their heads against the boards so hard that I was afraid that several of them would smash their skulls. During their fits, their strength was so great that six strong peasants could not restrain one ill woman who tore herself from her grips and stuck her head under the table. Thanks to the presence of 40 peasants, we prevented them from mutilating themselves. After the fits, the ill women were like corpses. All of them were almost without a trace of life. Their faces were ghastly white. They were lying down with their eyes closed. Their breathing was almost imperceptible. Seeing just how toxic the situation in the settlement had become, the authorities advised Cicletinia to get out of town before she was murdered. This she did, taking her daughter to relatives in the metropolis of Moscow, some 400 kilometres to the east. But the village's convulsions still would not abate. Worriedly looking on, as civil order collapsed, the local authorities now had to turn to their superiors in St. Petersburg, who dispatched a psychologist to analyse and hopefully treat the afflicted. But here, as so often in history, the paper trail goes cold. Were the people of Ashepkova ever cured? What happened to Vasilisa and Cicletinia? We can but guess. Notions of witchcraft and demonic possession still had wide cultural currency in late Imperial Russia. Cases were numerous. Take the 73-year-old woman beaten to death in the countryside surrounding Moscow in 1893 for having caused impotency at weddings over a 10-year period. Or the 50-year-old woman burnt to death near the city of Novgorod by a mob of 200 of her neighbours for the alleged crime of causing death through spellcraft. The presence of shriekers, as the possessed were called in Russian, at monasteries and convents was widespread enough for the great novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky to use this scenario to introduce one of the pivotal characters in his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov, as Dostoevsky's narrator describes. The elder stood on the top step, put on his stole and began to bless the women who crowded towards him. A shrieker was pulled to him by both hands. She no sooner saw the elder than she suddenly began somehow absurdly screeching, hiccuping and shaking all over, as if in convulsions. The elder, having covered her head with the stole, read a short prayer over her, and she at once became quiet and calmed down. I do not know how it is now, but in my childhood I often used to see and hear these shriekers in villages and monasteries. Taken to the Sunday liturgy, they would screech and bark like dogs, so that the whole church could hear. But when the chalice was brought out, and they were led to the chalice, 
the demonic possession would immediately cease, and the sick ones would always calm down. As the narrator of this scene goes on to note, these disturbances used to be dismissed as fraud, an effort to avoid work, but now medical practitioners were explaining that this was a disease among women, caused by strenuous overwork, painful pregnancies, and violent wife beatings. These were indeed, and remain, two of the most commonplace explanations of cases of demonic possession, fraud or a psychological ailment, one particularly connected to the supposed mental weaknesses of women. Others, both then and today, simply dismissed the entire thing as ignorance. But for our purposes, these explanations are both rather glib and difficult to truly substantiate. Woe betide the historian who attempts psychological diagnosis across a century on the basis of incomplete bureaucratic paperwork written by witnesses who were themselves immersed in a world of their own prejudices. Instead, it is far more interesting and rigorous to explore the mental and cultural outlooks that lay behind these instances, to engage, in other words, in an act of historical anthropology. Such a path allows us to safely navigate between the rock of dismissing peasants as either naive or conniving, and the hard place of giving any credence to the physical reality of demons, witches and possession. To begin, we must look at the physical realities of the peasant world. It was not, by any stretch of the imagination, a pleasant one. Life expectancy, even in the late Russian Empire, was little above 30 years of age. Death was an ever-present companion. Even the smallest cut or slightest wound could become infected in dirt-encrusted, smoke-filled peasant huts with the only possible treatment being amputation, done before the late 19th century without anaesthetic. Professional medical treatment was nearly impossible to access for many, often because there were simply no doctors anywhere in the local vicinity. And even if there was a doctor to be had, the treatment could be costly. And even then, let us remind ourselves that until some way into the 19th century, Doctors were hardly much better than the quacks they competed against, trained in theories and practices of medicine that were defective at best. For most, the two solutions available were the village healer, someone well versed in the medicinal qualities of plants, and the local priest, who might have gleaned some medical knowledge during his seminary education, and who could, at the very least, offer some kind of sacred cure, a blessing perhaps, or some holy water. And then there was disease. Even the educated had no idea about germs and viruses, how they spread from person to person, and how to cure the ailments they caused. Cramped into one tiny, grimy room, with scant privacy for even the most basic of bodily functions, it is no wonder that disease spread like wildfire among the peasant population often with fatal results. All this was only accentuated by problems with food supply. Malnutrition was rampant, and starvation was but one or two failed harvests away. The slightest alteration in weather patterns from the ideal could thus spell death for hundreds, even thousands. And of course, 
there were also hazards. Tripping into fast-flowing rivers or treacherous lakes, getting lost in predator-strewn forests, deep, silent and eternal. Falling victim to bandits roving over the ill-pleased countryside. Standing in the wrong place at the wrong time as one of your fellows slashed his scythe at crops or raised his axe to chop wood. All of these could and did before the incautious and the unlucky. And then there was the social order, glued together with a healthy smattering of violence. It must be remembered before 1861, a large proportion of the Russian peasantry were serfs. In other words, little more than slaves, beholden to noble landowners. They controlled peasant marriage, peasant movement, peasant work, peasant land, peasant property. They could buy peasants, they could sell peasants. Recalcitrant peasants could be punished without the slightest hint of due process, normally a whipping or a fine, but possibly exiled to Siberia or dispatched to the army, both of which could be death sentences, or at the very least, gateways to existences even more uncongenial than village life. The state did little to stop any of this, beyond prohibit the killing of serfs and exhorting landowners to be just and compassionate lords. Only the abolition of serfdom in 1861, the establishment of universal conscription in 1871, and the eventual banning of corporal punishment did the power of a landed nobility diminish and peasant lives become somewhat easier. But there was still the problem of your own village and the people who lived within. Rightly fearing the intervention of outside authorities, peasant communities often punished infractions with swift beatings, administered either by the fist or the whip. Small and tight-knit, these communities were hotbeds of gossip and rumour. Knowing your neighbours intimately and seeing them every day, very little was kept private. Narrow social conformity was usually rigidly enforced by the village elders, with the eccentric, the different and the atypical punished and driven out. In peasant homes themselves, the male heads of households wielded near total power over their wives and children. With divorce nearly impossible and flight immensely risky, domestic violence was endemic. As if this was not enough of a burden on women, childbirth was an immensely dangerous and painful undertaking in this pre-medical age, often costing the lives of both mother and child. And as contraception was nearly useless and abortion very dangerous, wives might have to go through pregnancy extremely frequently, each time being a very heavy risk. This list of woe is of course one-sided. I neglect the many joys that could punctuate peasant life, like the raucous vodka-fueled parties of the harvest, the fun and games at weddings, the beauty of services in lovingly decorated churches, full of colourful paintings and sonorous singing that evoked the mystery of the divine and inspired compassion. These, I hope, will be the subject of a future tale. But for my purposes today, I need to emphasise a core, salient fact that peasants throughout the two centuries of Imperial Russia's existence 
drifted atop a sea of uncertainty, where the slightest errant breeze could spell doom. They lived in a world dominated by raw and inhuman chance, one which they could do very little to control. This was at the root of their worldview. Lacking even the very rudiments of education, Russian peasants understood the world as divided between light and dark, between spirits malign and forces divine. In the former category, we find the water demons, who could pull the unsuspecting into the depths, and the woodland spirits, tempting people to lose their way in Russia's massive, dark forests. Belief in such spirits personalised the accidents of daily life, made them knowable and perhaps preventable. For against such dark forces were those of the light, predominantly associated with the Christian church. To ward off the water spirits, for instance, cross oneself before traversing a bridge, or make sure to wear a crucifix when approaching lakes and ponds. A house could be sprinkled with holy water. Inside, images of the saints could be installed alongside candles, offering protection to all who dwelt within. No right-thinking Russian peasant family would fail to maintain a so-called red or beautiful corner, the place where the saintly icons were kept. Even today, many pious Russians have such a thing in their homes. To summarise, believing that the world was filled with the demonic let people take countermeasures, thus creating some sense of control, some sense of agency, some sense of security in an often hostile, often cruel existence. But, so this unspoken logic went, just as the forces of the divine could be commanded by humans through blessings, crosses and other holy items, did it not stand to reason that the forces of darkness could also be commanded? And might not some of the misfortunes of everyday life be the result of such malign people using their black power to avenge some social slight? Russian folk culture was full of curses to bring about such wicked ends. Reading a church prayer backwards, placing a crucifix in the sole of one's boot, trampling on liturgical bread after its transformation into the body of Christ were just some. Most notorious, both in Russia and elsewhere in Europe, was the evil eye, a ferocious stare intended to inflict supernatural harm on the unlucky victim. Great was the fear that a witch or a sorcerer might accost a wedding. If they were not appeased with gifts and food, they might curse the newlyweds, rendering the man impotent or the woman infertile. Here, then, was the root of the belief in witchcraft and why seemingly sober, pragmatic people could place such faith in it. By giving evil agency, by placing a human face on misfortune, one could render it comprehensible and take measures against it. The demonic, the miraculous, all of it was sustained by the hope that an uncontrollable world might be, to some extent, rendered controllable, predictable, safe. But of course, this was not a victimless process. As in other societies, the people who were suspected of communing with the dark forces were often the most vulnerable in the community, people who dwelt on its limits, on the borders of acceptability. 
disabled, the physically malformed, the widowed and the single. Folk healers were often particularly vulnerable, since many of their cures were already perceived as magical. And of course, if a cure went wrong or failed to have an effect, then such a result might be interpreted as malign intent on behalf of the healer. As we have already seen, accusations of being a witch brought ostracization, violence and even murder. But in other cases, there was a social role for some of those designated witches and sorcerers. For example, they were invited to weddings not only to placate them, but also to use their services. Paid enough in money, food and drink, they could keep other magic users and disturbed forces at bay at this crucial moment in people's lives. At the threshold from one point to the next, when it was perceived they were most vulnerable. For similar reasons, their presence might be sought at births and baptisms, or at key moments in the agricultural cycle. And finally, what of the state's part in all of this? Before the 18th century, the Russian law code, like its European counterparts, has statutes punishing witchcraft. But in Muscovy, there was no great persecution of witches. Compared with 10,000 trials and four to 5,000 executions in France between 1400 and 1700, Russia only saw 250 trials in the two centuries between 1500 and 1700, with less than 15% of these leading to the death penalty. Equally curious and peculiar is the fact that Russian witches in this period were more often men than women, in striking contrast with Britain, France and Germany. This only began to change with the 18th century, as European influence percolated into Russia, both witches and the victims of witches began to become more exclusively female. At the same time, the state moved away from prosecuting witches for magic, Rather, it began to consider them fraudsters, perpetrating hoaxes to fleece money and fear from the gullible. The same status was assigned to the possessed, now seen as criminals rather than victims under the law. Then the 19th century saw the medicalization of demonic possession, the introduction of psychiatry and psychology into the Russian medical establishment from the 1860s, led possession to being diagnosed as an illness, often one associated with a supposedly mental and physical fragility of women, their alleged predisposition towards hysteria. Accusations of witchcraft, curses and demonic possession are nothing new in world history. The persecutions and burnings of the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries in Europe and beyond have retained their ability to shock and perplex with scholars dedicating hundreds of thousands of pages in the attempt to explain them. At first glance, what is perhaps most staggering about the Ashepova case with which our tale began is that it happened just before the beginning of the 20th century, an age when science and technology seemed to rule supreme. But this is only at first glance. Cases of possession continue to crop up to this very day across the globe. As explored in one 2016 documentary, at least one Catholic priest in Sicily does a roaring trade in exorcisms. Fears of Satanist cults have generated social hysteria 
both in modern Russia and the United States. Even as the peasant world of uncontrollable suffering, pain and death has faded, the cultural image of the witch has retained some of its power, still a useful scapegoat to explain the often inexplicable tragedies that continue to dog our lives today. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. <laughs>